اعوذ باللہ من الشیطان الرجیم بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم لا اکراح فی الدین In the Holy Quran we read the verse لا اکراح فی الدین There is no compulsion in religion Many of us either understand the depths of this verse or we may misconstrue it uh, in our own favor at times When Allah Almighty says La ikraha fiddin There is no compulsion in religion It means that you have the right To choose whatever faith you wish There is no compulsion on anybody They can be Christian They can be Muslim They can be Hindu They can be atheists That is Allah's favor That He has done upon us That He allows you to choose Whatever you wish to choose But the choice is there Because of free will we have the ability to choose but if we were to genuinely make an effort we would see that God Almighty has a path and we would be led towards it it's a matter of having sincerity of heart but many people think that la ikraha fiddin also applies to tenets of religion elements of the faith meaning if I embrace Islam now I can pick and choose what aspect of Islam I like I don't like to pray That's out Zakat, not a fan Fasting, maybe And this way we pick and choose parts of our faith But this is not what La ikraha fiddin means Many of our youth sometimes Dwell on these kinds of conversations La ikraha fiddin There's no compulsion of religion Why are they telling us to pray? Why are they telling us to do this or that? So La ikraha fiddin can be likened to You have a choice to live in any country you wish You want to live in Russia? Go ahead. You want to live in America? Go ahead. Wherever you would like to live, you are more than welcome to do so. But, once you decide you want to live in America, well guess what? You have to pay taxes. Guess what? You have to follow the law of the land. But, if you don't like America, you don't like its laws, you're not able to genuinely change it, you cannot live in this kind of atmosphere, then you're more than welcome to move. To leave, go to another country. That's what La Ikraha Fiddin means. If you do not find Islam attractive, by all means, you can try any religion you like. Nobody is forcing anybody to be a Muslim, to be an Ahmadi Muslim. There is no force there. And if there is a parent that is forcing their child, they should know it's to the child's detriment. Because until and unless they're not able to compare their faith with other religions, they will not know how beautiful it truly is. We take things for granted when we don't get a chance to see how lucky and how blessed we are. The grass is greener on the other side until you get there. Then you realize it was probably better on my side. Now with all of that, all of these confusions happen, these struggles and these trials, because first and foremost, Muslims have existed in this world now for 1400 years. Many cultures have embraced Islam from day one. And since they embraced Islam from day one, those cultures have revamped themselves, redirected themselves. They're decorated differently, where they look as Muslim as they could be. And sometimes that is deceiving. Because sometimes we think that because it is coming from Asia or a Muslim-majority country, it must be Islamic. It must be Muslim. Even our dress, for example. Many people think... That this dress is Islamic, without it, you cannot be a Muslim. 
I led Jummah once in New York City. And I had a suit and tie on. Or I didn't have the tie, but I had a suit on. Afterwards, there was a, a gentleman who was, you know, interested in Ahmadiyya Muslim community. He was attending. And so one of the members introduced me to him. And he was from Bangladesh. And his first question was, Why are you not wearing Punjabi? They call it Punjabi, the dress I'm wearing now. Right? He said, why are you not wearing Punjabi? And it was interesting to me because now that I think about it, Punjabi has nothing to do with Islam. <laughs> There's no aspect of Islam and Punjab directly at all. Yet for him, the biggest shock was, why is this Muslim wearing a suit? Why is he not wearing Muslim clothing? So these are some of the struggles that we have. And this is a young man, by the way. Meaning he was trained to consider that what he saw coming from the East must be Islamic. These are the struggles that we have today. What is Islam and what is culture? And many of our youth are struggling to find where is the, the difference or where is the similarities? Where, what should we see and what should we do? Now what's interesting here though of course is that the true philosophy of Islam, the deep-rooted concepts of Islam can be easily identified if you know what they are. If you don't, then you can fall prey to this. And so many times, our folks are making choices, they're choosing between culture, and they think that it might be divine teachings, they may think it's not, especially when it comes to weddings or marriage ceremonies. A lot of things we feel are Islamic, religious, faith-based, but 99% of the time, they are cultural. If you go to a Turkish wedding, you will see a whole host of other different cultures, which they feel is Islamic. You go to an Arab wedding, it's completely different. Go to a Pakistani wedding, is different. Even a Bangladeshi wedding will have its own host of things. Now what's beautiful about Islam is that it doesn't bind anybody, or it doesn't bind all of society to one fixed way. Meaning my hat is an Indonesian style hat. But somebody can be wearing that hat and that hat and it doesn't matter. You can wear a baseball cap as well. I know growing up we were told it's haram to wear a baseball cap. But it's not. You have to cover your head. That's the philosophy. How you cover it, what style it is, no problem. Cowboy hats are allowed as well. No problem. It all works. A poncho, great. Not a poncho, what is it called? There's a... Not a fedora, those big hats. Sombrero. Sombrero, there we go, sombrero. Sombreros are okay as well. Now they won't be very effective in Salat. <laughs> because when you prostrate, you won't be able to, right? You have to put your, your nose and your forehead on the floor. I know, sombrero will definitely come in the way. But my point is that Islam is beautiful in this way. When you look at Christianity or Judaism, they have very strict rules. You have to look a certain way. Sikhs, classic example, they have to wear a certain kind of turban. And so they are limited by their religion about how much their religion, how many people can embrace their religion. They're limited. Islam is not. Islam says cover your head. Why? Because it shows respect to others, respect to God. That's why we cover our head. How you cover your head, by all means do it. Whichever way you like. But what happens is sometimes our culture starts to get so specific, nitty gritty, that we start to tell our kids or our next generation or others who don't know that no, no, you have to wear this kind of hat. You have to wear this kind of clothing. You have to pray at this exact moment of time. There's no wiggle room. Whereas in the Holy Prophet Muhammad, 
always taught us that there is ease in religion. There's wiggle room. Understand the philosophy and you will embrace the faith. Now with that said, I wanted us to talk today about a subject which is interesting, which is the rights towards others. Meaning, what should we do towards others? How should we conduct ourselves in society? Why? Because Islam is a code of life. Islam is not just pray like this, say these words when you enter the mosque. No, it's a code of life. It's changing your life. And not just your life, but life of society. Improving the life of society or improving society as a whole. As a result of that, Islam's goal, and remember this, if we can remember this, it will help us create those, the positive change in our own lives. Islam's goal is to improve your life, improve life of society, make life better. How do we make life better? By giving due rights to those around us, making sure everybody is happy. But what does that really mean? So now, let's look at, for example, the fact that we are living in America. Declaration of Independence, something we are taught in schools, grilled, put down our throats. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Rights. These are the unalienable rights that we feel everybody should have. We must honor the rights of others. But let's talk about how do we honor the rights of others within our faith. Because it's easy to understand how do you honor somebody's rights outside. You're always demanding your rights, right? Culture in America is, I want to define my rights. What do I get? How does the government pay me? What benefits do I benefit, right? All these things are there. But when we look at life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in the realm of faith, you will see it's very different. It's about how many rights can you give to others, to what extent you should. So, today I'm going to only talk about the first element, life. Whereas in, in the next couple of weeks, we may talk about the next two as well. So first of all, as a born Ahmadi Muslim, or somebody who has accepted Ahmadiyya, or Ahmadiyya Muslim movement in Islam, it's always important to start from our own homes. It's not fair to talk about the bigger picture, the world should do this, and the city should do this, and the mayor should do this. What are we doing in our own homes? Because that's where change begins, the grassroots. Because life within our faith, liberty within our faith, and pursuit of happiness within our faith, has to start from our own homes. So let's talk about life, for example, first and foremost. In Islam, when it talks about this concept of life, or the right to live, there are cases where spouses will treat and speak to their significant other with great disgust. The right to live is not just that you can breathe, but that you can actually breathe. You have ease of life. Because simply breathing, that's, just, that's the bare minimum. You should be able to survive in life. You shouldn't have to walk out your door and get shot. Or killed. And of course there are certain places in America, you can't even ensure that. But overall, the idea is that yes, you should be able to breathe. But beyond that, you should be able to breathe a sigh of relief throughout the day. You should not have extra stress and anxiety and tension. That is what Islam says is the key here. Sometimes you see spouses, 
speaking to their significant others, who they claim to love, so degrading. And yet, when that same spouse will go outside to a local cashier to buy something, they're very respectful to an absolute stranger. To the people they love, they speak to them with filthy language, they curse at them, but when they are with strangers, they are very kind, they are very polite. And the moment they come home, what do they do? They walk in that door and immediately they turn on that beautiful language that America has so beautifully embraced, unfortunately. People you're supposed to love and cherish, people you're supposed to take care of, they don't even show the same respect they do to a random stranger on the street. And so when we talk about life within our faith, the right to live, then we have to embrace a concept in Islam which is safety. People have to feel safe. And safety again is not just that you don't get killed, but you should feel safe in your homes, safe within the mosque, you should feel safe at your workplaces, you should feel safe at school. Today, there was two or three armed assailants who were who were running down the street in front of my daughter's school. And as a result, the Ontario police, the Chino police, had to barricade the entire neighborhood. They had a helicopter flying by saying, please stay in your homes and don't let in the following description man in your home, because it won't be good. And then they said eventually, from 8.30 in the morning till about 12 o'clock, they, had a, they created a little bunker of their own, and they were shooting between the police and them until finally around one o'clock they were finally caught. One person still escaped. This is just down the street from our mosque. All day long we had emails from our school saying the kids are with a locked lockdown. They are in their rooms to such an extent that they had a bucket. If you have to go to the bathroom, raise your hand. We have a bucket in this classroom where you can use the bathroom. That's not safe in our schools. There's something wrong here. And Islam does not think that's okay in any way or form. There is something wrong here. Children should not have to learn how to hide under their desks. In one drill, they even taught them, if somebody comes in your room with a gun, what should you do? Throw things at them. Pencils and books. Imagine that. So, when we talk about safety in Islam... Everywhere you should feel safe. There are a lot of situations where men, women, children, young and old, they experience physical, verbal, and mental abuse. This is a real, this is a serious reality. And I'm not speaking to you simply just in thin air, in some, some kind of, you know, some kind of random book I read. These are real life stories. These are real life situations that I deal with on a regular basis. As a missionary, in and outside of our community. People are suffering. People need extra help. And this idea of physical, verbal and mental abuse, unfortunately it starts with verbal abuse. It always does. There's a threshold between people who love one another. When they first get married, they will never cross certain thresholds. They will never use certain language with each other. But once that honeymoon phase is over, they use that one word, then the second word, then the third word. Now every word is a curse word. They don't even know how to speak normally anymore. 
They refer to each other in single letter words. It's a downward path where people will first use filthy language towards their own spouses. It will extend to their kids. And they have no regards to the effect it has on their homes. Leading to an unsafe environment. This is what Islam says. Everything you do affects your soul. You're eating away at your soul. The words you use, the choices you make, even just by uttering a word, it affects your soul. And I also know those who play games will typically, to make themselves seem like they're big and tough, will use filthy language as well. Society has convinced us that it's okay, that it's good, and yet we forget it's a slow poison to our souls. Now I'll take a step further. A true Muslim, it's our responsibility to establish peace in our homes, in our neighborhoods and around the world. And yet, we cannot maintain a progression towards greater peace within our homes. How can we claim to have a peaceful solution to the world? If our homes are not peaceful, how on earth can we make a claim for the rest of the world? Look at our homes for a moment. Think about it. It may not be your home, maybe an extended relative or somebody you know. But how many of us have daughter-in-laws that feel safe? How many of us have mother-in-laws that may also be victims of abuse? How many of us have spouses or children's children who do not feel peace at home? In fact, they despise going home after a long day or after a stressful day. Do we live in a home or merely a house? Because it's love and affection that turns a home, I'm sorry, turns a house into a home. As I mentioned already, it starts with verbal abuse. Typically, it's already established mental abuse in the home. Sometimes it can lead to physical abuse. Nobody in your home, whether they're your wives, your children, your parents, nobody should feel as though they are not welcome in the home. The same applies to our mosques. It is how you speak to a kid or a fellow member or an elder which will affect whether or not they feel safe in this place. There is no doubt there are angels here. There is a spirituality here. There is an essence of, of brotherhood here. But a single person with their behavior can disrupt that peace. Can disrupt the goodness that lies within. So it's very critical that we re-examine ourselves, examine our homes. What are we doing? What kind of home have we established? Are we loose with our tongue? And if we are, what effect does it have on our soul and our families and extend it to other people that we meet and greet? Second aspect of life within our faith is privacy. See, when you walk out the door, we talked about how you should be safe. You should be able to get from one place to another. You should also be able to go from one place to another without having to reveal every aspect of why you're doing it. There is an element of privacy in Islam. And I want to talk about that today as well. Especially this idea of privacy, sometimes it goes undetected. Some of us forget sometimes we should respect each other's personal space. 
In fact, there's a level of parda that each and every one of us has to have. It's space that is respected and honored. Now, well, the reason I use the word parda is not the veil of the woman. Parda is a veil that you and I have of privacy. That you and I are afforded, granted in Islam. Sometimes we see that there are mother-in-laws that overstep their bounds, cross over the level of parda. Sometimes we see daughter-in-laws, they do the same in return. Sometimes we see husbands and wives, even though they are afforded respect, sorry, parda, within their own homes, they sometimes don't understand. And remember in the Holy Quran, Allah says, a husband is a garment to a wife, and the wife is a garment to the husband. A garment is used here as a word to understand what privacy is. They're supposed to hold the privacy of one another. It should not be that whenever girls get together, they start talking about their spouses. And it should not be when a bunch of guys get together, they start talking about their wives. That's not okay. Yes, there could be struggles. You can speak, you know, hypothetically, you can speak to a concerned person. A person who can actually help you. That's good. But if the mafil, the majlis, the group, the gathering is solely, we have nothing else to talk about. Let's just talk about what's happened in your home, what's happening in my home. Oh wow, we have similar terrible homes. That should not be the case. Not that we should not address where homes have struggles. If a home has a struggle, has a problem, as I've mentioned already, if they don't feel safe, they should speak up, but to the concerned people. People will help them. Not just anybody, not just any Tom, Dick and Harry. You should find somebody who can actually help you. In the Jamaat, of course, we have the missionaries, we have the presidents, we have the Amla members. We have a whole host of people. You may have an elder in your home. Whatever it may be, by all means, reach out. We want to help you. You should feel safe. But as I continue thinking about this more and more, I realize that sometimes, if we look at the Holy Quran, we'll understand some of those beautiful gems. For example, in the Holy Quran it says, husband and wife have a specific time in the day when they are supposed to be granted privacy from their children, from their family member, for everybody. They are granted that specific. It's all in the Holy Quran. Even children have to adhere to it. And yet we see, sometimes husbands, they'll expose the private issues about their wives to public. Sometimes wives will expose their husbands in public. And both is wrong. Sometimes mother-in-laws, maybe even father-in-laws, they'll get involved so much, they will either intrude to such an extent that they will physically enter the rooms of their sons and daughter-in-laws, snoop around. In other situations, they will even go to the extent of taking things that they're not entitled to. These are real-life examples that I have seen in my own life. And these are things that we have to remember are not okay. Privacy is respected. In fact, there is a narration I remember, and I have not been able to pull it out, but from my memory, there was a man who, when the Prophet Muhammad was in his home and he was combing his hair. And he happened to notice he was in his home, so he peeked through and was just watching him, just observing, you know, his love for the Prophet. The next day he told the Prophet, and again I could, I have to, I'm, I'm paraphrasing from what I remember, but when he spoke to the Prophet, he said, you know, yesterday I saw you, how you were brushing your hair. And the Prophet said, if I had known, I would have taken one of the, the, the pins of the, the, the brush and I would have poked your eye out. Because that is his right to privacy. And we forget this. Islam is very beautiful when it 
has a balance of privacy. What you do in your homes is your business. Nowhere will you see in Ahmadiyya Muslim community or in Islam in general, where what happens in a home privately is exposed outside. The only time Islam addresses punishments for a crime of some sort, or an ill that exists in society, is when it is a social ill, not an individual ill. If what you do in your home is so outwardly exhibiting itself, that it gets to the neighboring homes and everybody in town knows what you're doing, you're on the, I don't know, the balcony and you're doing something inappropriate, now the whole town knows. Then Islam says you'll be punished. But what you do in your home, in the privacy of your home, Islam says we will never, ever raise that concern. That is your business. That is why when people do have struggles in their own homes, and they go to a concerned person, Islam is very clear. You do not have to live with such a person. 1400 years ago, when no other religion, even till this day, there is no religion that accepts divorce from both husband and wife except Islam. Islam understood this 1400 years ago. That if a woman is in a home, again, there's privacy there, she's in a home, and she's suffering, and there's no way for me and you to know what she's suffering with, Islam says she, is, she has the right to simply say, I have enough of this home, I'm out of here. And the entire society has to back her up and help her out of that home, immediately. These are the beautiful gems that exist in Islam. It is our responsibility to get deeper and deeper to understand them. I will end with a brief story about balancing between culture and Islam. Rashid Ahmad American, a pioneer convert of the Ahmadi Muslim community in 1948, was called to go to Rabwa, Pakistan to live and learn under the second Khalifa of the Promised Messiah Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmad. When he arrived in Rabwa, he went through airplane, he was, like I say, he was raised in Chicago. He used to be a gangster. He would sell drugs. He had money. He had cash. He had guns. You name it. But he transformed his life. Embraced Islam. Became so devoted to prayer. He would go there all night and pray. And eventually he was selected to go all the way and learn from the Khalifa himself. He is also the very first missionary that was ever sent to America. From America. When he gets there, he went to various people's homes before meeting the Khalifa. And they gave him gifts. They gave him a turban. They gave him kuse. They gave him a sharwani. They gave him shalwar kameez. You know, the Punjabi dress. You know, He had it down. He grabbed a few maps. And he said, I will go into the Khalifa's room and I will tell him how to do tabligh. He's new. He has no idea. But he was excited and passionate about the work he used to do in Chicago. The moment he entered the room, he said, that was my very first lesson. He said, the moment I entered the room, the first lesson was the Khalifatul Masih, Hazrat al-Muslim, turned to him and said, where did you get these clothes? And why? He said, my answer was, I got it from this guy, and this guy, and this guy. And the reason is, I want to be as Muslim as I possibly can be. And Hazur immediately stopped him. He said, don't think that everything here, just because you're in a Muslim country, is Islam. No. There are cultures at play here that do not embrace true Islam. He said, in fact, there are certain things that happen here that are not even close to Islam, while back home in your country, meaning America, there are certain things that you do that are closer to Islam. 
And he gave example. He said, here in this country, when people are walking on the street, and one of the three friends decides he has to use the restroom, he will simply say, hey guys, wait one second. He will turn in one direction, and he will start urinating on the floor. No regard to anybody watching, no big deal. No reason to go into a private place and use the restroom, just right there on the street. He said, but back home in America, how do you go to the restroom? He said, we go into a secluded spot, we go into a room, a bathroom, a restroom. He said, that is more Islamic than what they do here. So don't ever think that because you are here, everything you see is Islam. Find out what Islam says, and then decide which culture is closer to that definition of Islam. And that's the answer for every one of our youth. When they're frustrated, what am I allowed to do? What am I supposed to do? My parents said this, this. The answer is, go back and see what Islam says. Read the Holy Quran, read something. And you will then understand how Islam has outlined every aspect of your life for you. And then you can pick and choose what is right. May Allah help us to do so. Amen.